Well, it is Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, years ago now, uh, the uh, district superintendent that I was working under suggested to pastors that rather than preach a sermon on Easter, that we simply tell the story. And I started doing that way back then, and it's become an, an annual kind of thing for me, a tradition for me, and for the congregations where I've served. But this morning, I want to tell you the Easter story. It begins in Gethsemane, a beautiful garden outside Jerusalem's walls, a place Jesus loved to come. But this time, to pour out his struggle and sorrow in prayer with the Father. It was Thursday night, and alone in prayer with his Father, Jesus' agony began. Jesus saw clearly what lay ahead, and as a man, he struggled with obedience to the Father's will. In such distress and agony, he literally sweat great drops of blood. Already his disciples had abandoned him in his struggle, and as they enjoyed their sleep, Jesus agonized in prayer. When finally resolved, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. The sound of marching, swords and armor shatter the darkness. Here's an army, perhaps 400 men, Roman soldiers, temple guards, Jewish leaders. They swarm through the night as the Old Testament had foretold. Judas betrayed his master for 30 pieces of silver with a kiss. All through that night and into the following morning, Jesus would endure no fewer than six trials on trumped-up charges, mockeries of justice, really. He endured torching, torture of beatings that would kill most men. First, they led him to Annas, the former high priest, a man who had no official position, but he had great influence and he hated Jesus. The Old Testament prophesied that he would be hated without cause and they could find no evidence that could be used against him, but still they assembled the Sanhedrin at the house of Caiaphas, the current high priest. In the middle of the night, they assembled totally against their law in the patio at the house of a high priest of all places, awaiting Jesus each step of the way was a kangaroo court that had already made up its mind. Scholars of Jewish law have found no fewer than 20 illegalities in these proceedings. But here in the patio, the mockery of his trial began. When finally they could find no evidence against him, they turned to the spectators, and apparently there were lots, urging them to make up lies about Jesus. Two said that they heard Jesus say that he would destroy the temple. Oh, how they twisted his words. Caiaphas then took charge. He asked directly, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus, who had stood quietly all this time, responded boldly, I am as you say, and I tell you one day you will see the Son of Man sitting at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
At this, Caiaphas went into a rage in the whole Sanhedrin with him. They rushed forward, spitting in Jesus' face, beating him with their fists, and then blindfolding him. The temple guards began to beat him again and again and again, mocking him, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Who hit you? That trial lasted all night. In the morning, they dragged him again before the Sanhedrin, this time for sentencing, trying in the daylight to make things appear somewhat more legal. They questioned him directly, and when he answered directly that indeed he was the Messiah, his sentence was sure. There was no way they were going to let him live. Now, you need to know that the Roman government alone had power of capital punishment. The Jews had no power to send a man to death under Roman law, and so they bound Jesus' hand and foot, already bloody and swollen, uh, and from the beatings of the temporal police, and they dragged him before Pilate. And changing their story now, they said Jesus had made himself a king equal to Caesar. Oh, that got Pilate's attention. Pilate actually held the title friend of Caesar. And yet Pilate had already been in trouble with Rome. Caesar had warned him to pacify Jerusalem on more than one occasion. So Pilate was very careful. In taking Jesus aside, he questioned him privately and learned that Jesus talked of a heavenly kingdom, one for the hearts of men. He was no threat to Caesar. Understandably, Pilate wanted nothing to do with this mess. And thinking he could get this matter off his back, he sent Jesus to Herod. Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee, Jesus' home province. Let him deal with this. But all Herod wanted was to see Jesus do some magic trick. And when Jesus would not respond to this superstitious and wicked king, disappointed, Herod marched Jesus back to Pilate. Again, Pilate wanted no part of this mockery, but fearing the crowd, he found the most notorious cutthroat in the prison, a common murderer named Barabbas. And because it was the eve of a Passover, he gave the crowd a choice. Whom should I release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? But the crowd cried out, Give us Barabbas! Crucify! Jesus. So thinking he might be able to ply on their sympathies, Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. Scourging was called the halfway death at a professional torturer called a lictor took a weapon called a flagellum, a cat of nine tails about five feet long with pieces of bone and glass and rock sewn into the leather strips. And the victim was stripped of all of his clothes and tied face down over a low stone stump. It was not uncommon for men to die from a beating like this. 
It left terrible lacerations from the shoulders down, exposing muscle and ligaments and sometimes even internal organs as well. And they beat Jesus to within an inch of his life. And then they ridiculed him. The soldiers made him a crown, a a wreath-like Caesar's, but woven from branches of a thorn bush. Two-inch-long spikes, that's the Palestinian thorn bush. And they jammed it down on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, mocking a monarch's scepter. They found a ragged old soldier's cape, draped it over his bloody shoulders, and knelt down making sport of him, calling out, Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! What a pathetic mockery. Until again they brought Jesus to the crowd, horribly disfigured beaten, bruised, bloody mess. And Pilate said, still, I find no fault in this man. Behold the man. Look upon this pathetic creature. Surely he suffered enough. But through the crowd, a chant began. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. One of the priests yelled out, Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. And if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. And Pilate was trapped. So he took water in a basin and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. Remember that. But the crowd answered, Matthew tells us, His blood be upon us and our children. We'll take the consequences. Just kill Him. Finally now at 8 o'clock in the morning after this long night of, of abuse, they took Jesus out They hung a sign of mockery at his neck, King of the Jews. They placed the cross on his shoulders, and he began the long walk through the city streets to a hill outside the walls, a place called Golgotha. History tells us that condemned men carried only the cross piece about 40 pounds of wood. But Jesus in this weakened state, having lost so much blood already, could hardly walk. He collapsed there in the streets. So a man was taken from the crown. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross. And when they got to the hill, there the soldiers laid Jesus upon the cross of wood. They found the spot in his wrists where the bones of the forearm come together, where the next to the pulse, and they drove those six-inch spikes through his flesh and into the cross. Likewise, the other arm. And they crossed his ankles to drive a spike through the heels into the wood, and they lifted him up and hanged him there between two thieves. God showed Isaiah this picture 500 years before and it was 
prophesied that he would be lifted up among criminals to carry the sins of many. Crucifixion is a brutal way to die. Those who have studied capital punishment say it's the most brutal form ever invented. Actually, it was more a form of public torture than anything else. Often a victim would stay on the cross for days on end, not more than a few feet off the ground, naked as the day he was born, in excruciating pain and thirst. Some went stark raving mad. People on a cross didn't die from loss of blood as many imagine. The wounds usually swelled shut around those rusty spikes. Many died of tetanus, blood poisoning from those rusty spikes, or from exposure to the hot desert sun. But most died from suffocation. As the victim sagged down between the nails, the weight of his body hanging from his arms would soon paralyze the muscles of his chest so that he could not breathe. And as the arms would grow tired, waves of cramps sweeping through the muscles, knotting them in continuous throbbing pain, and the victim would raise up on those pained feet pinned to the cross just to grab a couple breaths of fresh air and fall back down on those painful spikes. Up and down, up and down for hours on end, the wounds on his back inflamed, rubbing against the rough wood until finally they could fight no more or their lungs filled up with fluid and they drowned in their own bodily fluids. Most victims fought with loud cursings and screamings, but not our Lord. His only words from the cross were His cries to the Father and words spoken in love to those who stood nearby Him. Such pain, such agony, and it was all for you, my friend. All for me. It was our cross He bore. It was our crown He wore. It was about 9 o'clock in the morning, the Scripture says, when Jesus was crucified. He lived till only 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But to the end, He was different from any man who ever lived. His love was unstoppable. He spoke not much in those six hours, but so much was said in love to for others. He looked out at the crowd, still mocking and jeering, and said, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. To the repentant thief next to him, Jesus promised, today you will be with me in paradise. He looked down at his mother, and John the Apostle who was there, woman, this is now your son. Young man, this is now your mother. His love was unstoppable. Even such pain, even in the midst of brutality and hatred. From noon on, the sun was blackened from the earth. It was like midnight 
in the middle of the day, almost as if the sun refused to shine on this abomination of men, that they would treat the Son of God so, that they would humiliate the Savior of the world, that they would crucify the Creator of all. Nature itself reacted in horror. And finally, in the darkness, Jesus was horribly alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never before had he experienced such loneliness. He who was sinless, who knew the constant fellowship and friendship and favor, favor of his Father, was now so horribly alone. For in that hour, my sin and your sin was his to bear. Jesus became sin for us, the Scripture says. And in the dark, Jesus was utterly alone. Those standing by the cross thought he was crying out for water. So instead of water, they grabbed vinegar and laughing, they soaked it in a sponge and held it up on a stick for him to drink. And when Jesus tasted it, he cried out in a loud voice, just one word, finished! Finished. It's finished, all finished, all I came to do, the life I came to live, the death I came to die, the forgiveness I was to win. Finished. And then Jesus bowed his head and said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We know that this little part of Psalm 31 was the prayer that every Jewish child was taught to pray crawling into bed at night. And Jesus, as he hung there, paying the price for your sins and mine, praying the prayer of his childhood, bowed his head. And breathed his last and died. All of this was for you. It was your cross he bore, it was your crown he wore. The moment Jesus died, scripture tells us amazing things happened. The earth shook and the rocks split. The graves were opened and many who had died were seen walking free from their graves. The veil in the temple woven inches thick. The curtain that kept men from the dwelling place of God was, was torn from top to bottom. For by His death, Jesus opened for you and for me entrance into the very presence of God. The next day was Sabbath in the midst of Passover, a high holy day, and the bodies could not be left on the crosses overnight. So the Romans came to break the victims' leg. this was legs. This was to prevent their pushing up, to breathe and hasten their death. But Jesus was already gone. And seeing that Jesus was already dead, one of the soldiers shoved his razor-sharp spike through Jesus' side, and the Scripture says that outflowed blood and water, telling that Jesus died literally of a broken heart. 
God had planned this sacrifice from before the foundation of the world. He had prophesied through the psalmist, not one of his bones will be broken. And the prophet Zechariah, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who before this were secret followers of Jesus, came to take the body down. They washed him carefully according to Jewish custom. They wrapped him carefully in a white linen sheet. And in between the folds and layers of cloth, they placed more than a hundred pounds of spices and aloes and ointments, embalming spices. Historically, we know that that was usually more than was used for the body of a king. These wealthy men, formerly closet Christians, now out in the open were demonstrating their deep love for Jesus. Someone has said if ever a death was made sure of Jesus was. The tomb was cut out of solid rock. At the door of the tomb, they rolled a huge great stone, perhaps two tons in weight. It was sealed with a cement seal, and as the Jews requested, Roman guards were placed outside. They were afraid that the disciples would come and steal his body and then say he'd risen, so they wanted to make sure that was Friday. But Sunday was coming. When Sabbath was over at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, another woman named Mary, and Salome went to the tomb. And on their way, an earthquake shattered the silence. And the scripture says that an angel from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. The soldiers outside the tomb were so frightened, they fainted away like dead men. And Jesus marched forth from the tomb as conqueror of sin and death for you and for me. It's a historic fact, my friends. But much more important, Jesus rose from that grave that he might be real today in your life and mine. We serve a risen Savior, not a dead Jesus. He came to die, but more, to rise again, that He might live in your heart when you trust Him by faith. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Well, the women arrived at the tomb and were surprised to find it empty. Mary Magdalene then ran immediately to find Peter. They've taken the body of my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him, she said. Peter and John ran to the tomb. John outran Peter, the Bible says, and stooping down and looking in, saw the grave clothes lying there. Peter didn't stop. He ran right into the tomb. And when he looked, he saw the grave clothes were in exactly the same form as when they had wrapped the body. It was as though his body had evaporated from the death shroud. John also went in, saw the grave clothes, and the wrapping that had covered Jesus' face and head was folded and lying to the side. And they saw, and they remembered his promises, and they believed. He is risen. 
He is risen indeed. That evening, the disciples were gathered together in the upper room, and they were telling the stories as it had happened. And Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene, spoken to her in the garden. He'd walked with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They'd recognized Him only as He prayed and broke bread with them. They were telling these stories and and suddenly Jesus stood in their midst saying, Shalom, peace to you. See my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Look and know that it's really me. I'm alive forevermore. And then the Scripture says they fellowshiped and ate together and Jesus vanished as quickly as He had come. Thomas, hearing about this later, said, I won't believe it. I can't believe it till I see the nail prints and touch the spear wound in his side. I've got to see for myself. And Jesus took him at his challenge. For the Gospel of John tells us that eight days later, as the disciples were again in the upper room, doors all locked, Thomas was there this time. And you know who he spoke to? Jesus. The doubting one. Thomas. Thomas, here's your answer. Come, look at my hands. Touch my side. Thomas, don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, there are many other appearances recorded for us in the 40 days that Jesus remained before His ascension. Paul tells us that at one time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people together in one place. And each of them would give witness to the fact that Jesus was alive, their Savior and Lord. Acts 1 tells us of that last appearance of the hope that we have in Jesus. For not only is He alive and ascended to heaven, one day He will come again for those who believe. Then they gathered around Him and asked Him, Lord, are You at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After He said that, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid, the, hid Him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. He is risen. He's risen indeed.